This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number eight of the series dealing with the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read the second Thessalonians chapters one and two. This evening we are considering the thirteenth chapter of this book of the Revelation, and it's confessedly a difficult passage at any time. One of the things that I think is dawning upon us as we face the world in which we live is that some of the dreadful things that have exercised the hearts and minds of many a Christian have not been overdrawn in days of prosperity and peace. You may look upon some of these as apocalyptic visions that you need not give too much credence to. Uh, But uh, you can extract from the newspapers evidences that it is indeed true that we read in the Gospel according to Luke, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. Letters to the Times, letters to the Telegraph, letters to the Daily Herald, it doesn't matter. All classes and conditions of men are thinking about the things which are coming on the earth. And this book is an unveiling, not only of Jesus Christ, but of the times which will be associated with his coming. We read about distress of nations and perplexity. Distress of nations and perplexity. That's true, isn't it? Men's hearts failing in for fear in looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. The sea and the waves roaring and the powers of heaven shaken. So that passage you see in Luke is already reminding us that this is a conflict which is not merely limited to earth and earthly things and nations. The powers of the heavens are involved, and we shall see that very clearly as we examine this difficult passage presently. So I think we can agree that we have not, is in no measure overdrawn when we look at this prophecy of the climax of the ages. And if we think of other things, how many are thinking, praying, and we can sympathise with them, that the summit conference, which is gradually getting nearer, shall be effective. But there's a passage in the book of Daniel that makes one realise there's another side to that. It says in the book of Daniel, speaking about this self-same time, that they shall sit at one table and tell lies, I don't know very much about diplomacy. I'm a rare baby with regard to political controversy. But I have a feeling that no man worth his salt will sit at that table and promise to destroy all the missiles he has. Because he'll say, if I do that, I shall betray me very country. So they'll all go back and promise to destroy them. And they'll all go back and they'll have a secret hoard of them. They'll all tell lies at one table for they cannot help themselves. They're in the grip of circumstances beyond their control. And so we have in the book of Daniel, this is keep on coming because that's anticipating it, the rise of a man from an obscure corner of the end of the Mediterranean, one of the four divisions of Alexander's empire, Greece, Syria, Egypt, round that corner. We don't know exactly, but from that corner will rise 
this little horn, he'll come in peaceably with flatteries, and then he'll suddenly paralyze the whole world. And the paralysis is in the realm of war. The cry goes up, who should be able to make war with him? That finishes it. But when you come to think of what is now in the possession of the nations of the earth, if some power is coming up to paralyze that lot, well you can realize that there is no overdrawing of the picture, if that is true. You're told in Daniel the 11th chapter of one who has a trust in the God of munitions. You read the marginal reference. One who has no place for the God of his fathers at all, but sets himself in the place of God. And so we've got this intermingling of human and spiritistic powers that are all getting the, as it were, the battle array for the last showdown. Isn't it good to know that beyond all this, there is that serene peace that must at last be brought by Christ. But what a dreadful passage of disaster and tears awaits this poor world before the battle is over. And then one other third feature comes out very strongly, as we shall see. You cannot get away from what you would call the religious side. At the very last, this evil power is demanding worship. It isn't that he sets worship aside as a non-entity. It's a usurpation that's going on all the time of the place that Christ alone shall occupy. And so we've got the devil on the one hand and Christ on the other, and the battle is drawn and it goes on until the alleluias go up and the end has come. And there's one other feature that I think we do well to stress. If some of God's people have an idea that they can preach a gospel without Christ, or they can have worship without Christ, the evil one knows better. For we shall look at the structure as we're going to now, and we see that there it's remembered, even though the false side, that the Lamb of God must be there. So shall we glance at the structure of this Revelation chapter 13 before we go into any details? I reminded you last time that instead of reading and he saw in Revelation 13, the revised text reads and uh, I stood um, on the, on the um, and he stood on the sand of the sea and he or I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. That's only just a, a little correction. He stood, that is the evil one. Now, who is this evil one? He's one who has been now cast out of heaven. Just glimpse back to chapter 12. And there was war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the devil, the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. The title of the evil one in our epistle is the prince of the power of the air. And there are spiritual wickednesses associated with our high calling. But here the climax is reached. And we are, we are told, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, and he was cast out into the earth, and his, his angels were cast out with him. And being cast out, he now plays his last card, as it were, and calls up his man. 
He stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise out of the sea. Here he is. This is the climax. And he was like to a leopard, and another, other descriptions which show you presently, we shall see, is a monstrous being foreshadowed in the book of Daniel, now coming to pass. And his authority is satanic. We'll look at all these again. I want you to notice in um, verse 3 particularly, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. And if you'll glimpse down to the second part of this same uh, structure, you see the false prophet is speaking about that wound and calling upon men to worship. Verse 14 he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So you see, both the beast and the false prophet are put in the travesty of the Lamb of God. For this is identical language with that which we have in chapter 5 when John said, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. And yet, the scripture in the same revelation says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive. So here we have a travesty of the lamb that was slain, received a deadly wound, and yet lived. And so we've got to that emphasis. The war with the saints is echoed by death for non-worship. And uh, then there's a call that divides these two sections, let him hear, and hear his patience. And the other one says, hear his wisdom, and let him count. Well, those are only just pointers. We must examine them, otherwise they're not very profitable. But it does show you that in spite of the problematic message here, it's under control, the structure is complete, almost word perfect, even in our version. So should, should we now come back again then? Satan has now lost his realm and is cast out. A battle has been joined. Michael and his angels, the devil and his angels, he's cast out to the earth and he knows his time is short, it says. He only has a short time. That is verse uh, 12. Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. It's a desperate throw, isn't it? Surely this evil one who is wise, even though wicked, knows that his end is approaching. And cannot you feel those words that sometimes have attracted me as I've read them, desperate as they are? Though Burnham would become to Dunsinane, and now opposed of no woman born, yet will I try the last. Before my body I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damn be he that first cries hold enough. That's desperation. In wondrous language, that's here. He's already doomed, but he doesn't stop. No possibility of repentance goes right through with this dread thing until he's finished. Now we have the next, next point is this monstrous creature that he calls up. Now it says out of the sea. And here we have rather a problem. Does it mean the sea in the sense that the nations of the earth are spoken of as like a sea? Or does it really mean it? 
Well, would you be surprised, friends, if I said, I don't know, I hope you won't. Because even I don't know everything, modest as that may seem. But I'll just give you one or two passages which are influencing me. I mentioned at the Wednesday meeting yesterday that the word bottomless pit that we have in Revelation 20 into which the devil was put for a thousand years and out of which he came once more to deceive is the same word that you find in Genesis 1 verse 2 when darkness is upon the face of the deep. So we have an abyss at the beginning of the book and we have an abyss at the end. And inasmuch as we are told that that which hath been is that which shall be, that it goes in a perfect pattern, I suspect that before Genesis 1 verse 2, the devil was put into that abyss then. And after man was created and put upon the earth, the serpent appears in the garden, he's out. And will he deceive again or will he act differently? He deceives again. It's consistent right through from Genesis 1 verse 2 to the last chapter of the book of the Revelation. Well then, again, placed over that, you have a reference in the um, chapter 16, chapter 16 in this book of the Revelation, another one that is very difficult to interpret, although the words are plain. Uh, Just wait a minute, let me find it. 16, 12, 13. Um, And the sixth angel poured out his vine upon the great river Euphrates. An emphasis upon a river. Coming back a little bit nearer, the passage I was trying to find just now, is um, in chapter 9. Chapter 9. Verse 14. The sixth angel which had had the trumpet loosed the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Could you understand that? How can angels be bound in a river? Well, we've got more references than one to an abyss or a deep or a river that seems to have the ability to hold. So there may be more things in heaven and earth that are thought of in our philosophy. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year to do their dreadful work. I'm only leaving it and saying, if we don't understand, thank God we shan't have to interpret it, for by the mercy of God we shan't be there. But these things are giving us a little insight into the satanic powers that are coming upon this earth. No wonder the poor paralyzed nations will look and say, who is able to make war with him when you're dealing with these creatures? And then the... um, the nondescript beast that we have in chapter 13, it described, um, and, I, and he stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. You know, various names are given to various ones in this book of the Revelation. And here's the names. Blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. And it's a monstrous beast because it said his feet were as the feet of a bear. And to think of a leopard with feet like a bear is a monster, isn't it? And his mouth is the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power. And his 
seat. That's the word throne. And his great authority. So here this terrible monster, which comes up at the call of Satan, is given the authority and the throne of Satan. Now if you'll turn back for a moment to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, you'll see that Daniel has spoken about this self-same monster, which is going to be the final rule of Gentile power in this earth. Isn't it good to know it's final? He says in chapter 7 that he had a vision of four great beasts, verse 3, that came out from the sea, diverse one from another. I won't read all the passage because of time. The first was like a lion, verse 4. Verse 5, the second was like a bear. Verse 6, the third was like a leopard. Well, now you can't escape it, can you? These three are mentioned in Revelation 13. Then he said, there was an indescribable one in verse 7. And his main attention was with regard to that indescribable one and that little horn that came up speaking great things in the verse 8. Well, we've got to the point in the book of the Revelation when these three are now combined in one. It looks almost as though the scripture says all the monstrous things that you associate with misrule down the ages are now going to be concentrated in one authority. What a time that will be. A time for all, in any measure, that stand for truth. And so we get the saints persecuted, put to death, at the end as they must be. Then we read, in coming back to Revelation 13, And I saw one of his heads that were wounded to death, the words that are used of the lamb that was slain. A travesty, of Christ. And as I said earlier, the evil one doesn't omit the very centre of true worship, even though some of God's people seem to pass it by slightly. A lamb that is slain is travestied, but a lamb that is slain was evidently there in mind. And all the world wondered, and they worshipped the dragon. Our conception of the Satan it may be mixed, uh, but there's every, every evidence that his realm is in the realm of worship and not in the realm of immorality. That comes in its train. But I have a feeling that if he could have a millennium, peace and prosperity and happiness on this earth, with no cry for the Son of God, it would suit his turn. But alas for him, it cannot be. Anything which detracts from the glory of God must also rebound to the, the uh, ill favour of man. And so, willy-nilly, murder and adultery and all the wickedness that comes on the earth arises out of the breaking of the first commandment. You know, the Ten Commandments are spoken of as the greatest code of moral law that's ever been contracted into such a small compass and all this other business. And the very first one is nothing to do with morals at all. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. And anyone who passes that and trespasses breaks the rest of it. And here it is. So this wicked one, this wicked one is involved in worship, but it's a usurpation of the place of Christ. The whole of the Bible, the whole of the ages through which the Bible has been traversing, is a conflict between light and darkness, good and evil, Satan and Christ, and it's to do with the recognition of the supremacy of God. 
You go back to the prophetic words in the prophet Isaiah, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Thou hast said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will set my throne on high. I will be like the most high. That's it. That overweening ambition in that realm. And so we have this nondescript creature gathered up from the prophet Daniel, now brought before us as the last throw of this wicked one in the earth. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's the only thing they see. He has some power that means all their boasted ability to destroy and blot out humanity is turning back on themselves. What it is, we do not know. Good, good thing too. But there it is. It's most obvious, not a, not a, um, a slight remark. It means something deep down in their consciousness. And then the blasphemy which we read in the book of Daniel. And there was given, into it, given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Great things and blasphemies. This attack upon the name and glory of Christ. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. There's a point here that I, it's nothing to do much with our subject but it is of interest you'll find in the epistle to Timothy that it's possible to blaspheme your fellow man. Did you know that? It's one thing to blaspheme God, but you can blaspheme those who are made in the image of God. So the next time you feel like telling another fellow being off, do it gently, because you may be blaspheming one that's made in the likeness of God. And here it's involved, you see. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. It was given to overcome them. These are some of the ways of providence that are hard to be endured, but they're stated. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. As I read in the newspaper, the desire of the parts of rulers to feel that we must have a world government and a world police force and a world centre, here we have again the thought, all kindreds and tongues and nations are not divided up into little groups here. This is universal. Wheresoever men dwell was given to Nebuchadnezzar, although he never extended his empire big enough. It was given to him, but here it is. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So it looks as though the only preservative will be to belong to the Lord in that day, otherwise it will be completely impossible for anyone to withstand. Now it says in verse 10, our version reads, (coughs) He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Well now, if you go back to Jeremiah 43 verse 1, I think you'll get a light on this. Jeremiah 43 verse Dreadful silence while we're fighting these sticky passages, isn't it? Jeremiah 43, 
43 verse 1. No, wait a minute, let me see. Uh, verse 11, is it? Yes, verse 11. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt, and deliver such as are for death to death, and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword. Will you bring that with you back again to Revelation 13 and read it this way? And it is a fair translation. He that is for captivity, into captivity he goes. He that is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Do you see? It's got some meaning now. If for the glory of God and the circumstances of the time you are marked for captivity, well, you go. But here is the patience and the faith of the saints who are trusting the Lord in the day of their distress. Now we come to the second beast. We have a beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. Here's the lamb element. This is the one that leads the worship. This is the one that is the spokesman. And he has two horns like a lamb. But he spake as a dragon. Here's the mixture. Endeavouring to, as it were, appear lamb-like. But his speech betrays him. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You see the travesty of the resurrection emphasized. So we've got now this beast and the false prophet both brought together. He's called the false prophet in chapter 19, if you like to get the passage to verify this. Verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. Do you notice that? They received the mark of the beast first. Then they were deceived. That was coming back upon their own heads, you see. And them that worshipped his image. So there's the beast and the false prophet. We come back to River, the 13th chapter. And he doeth great wonders. Great wonders. So we have signs and wonders and miracles associated with evil as well as with good. And some of those dear people who have only got to see an apparent miracle to believe it's from God, how they will be deceived if it were not for the protecting hand of God. For they shall be so near to the real thing that if it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. He doeth great wonders, so that maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth, by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast. Now you would wonder, wouldn't you, that in the enlightened days that lay ahead of us, that anyone should ever worship an image. But it only shows you the depths to which human nature can go when once these powers are dominant. And he gave power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast 
should be killed. Now Nebuchadnezzar had the same idea. He constructed an image, 60 by 6, and he called upon people by sounding six different kinds of instruments. Look at the 666 that's coming into it. That whenever they heard this music, they fall down and worship him. They worship the image. And then you've got the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who took that wonderful stand. They said, our God is able to deliver, and if not, oh, that's the point, friends, if not, we will not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar had to stand and watch the fire made seven times greater, and he saw not only three men in the furnace, but four, and one was like unto a son of God. For he said, God hath sent his angel. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and the fire shall not kindle upon thee. So God keeps his word. In old times, he'll keep it once again. And so we have the emphasis here. Uh, once more, verse 16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, this is universal, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now just, whether it means a literal stamp in your, in your hand and on your forehead, uh, whatever it means, it's something which is uh, eradicated, you can't eradicate it, it's there, and you're completely under in their mercy. If you cannot buy or sell, well, your number is up, you're finished. Of course, we've got the elements of it, and perhaps we, we don't want to say they're wrong. But you've all got your number, you're all registered, and uh, if the edict should go forth that those who had whatever your number was, you were a marked person, well, that'll be finished. And it could now extend to the ends of the earth. Before you get away, they're waiting for you at the other end. I remember going back a little bit when I had a temporary post in the food office. Once down again, the police coming in and saying to me, have you got so-and-so on your register? I looked, yes. Well, you'll be hearing. And this poor wretch had embezzled some of his money and he thought that if he would streak away quickly and get into a tiny back village in Cumberland, nobody would know he was there. So he goes to the food office and the first thing that happens is they notify me to cancel his meat and his sugar here and so that he can get it there. So the policeman knocks on his door next day he's finished. Well, if they can do it then, they can do it all over the world. So here is a grip that now has got people, you see. And what about this number? Here is wisdom. So it's a challenge for us, isn't it? I don't know whether we can rise to this. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of man. Not merely the number of a man. It's the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. And there are six words in the Old Testament for man. He's just one short of seven, which is perfection. The number of man. This is man to the superlative degree. 666. Well now you do know, and I'll put on the side here to help us out. You do know that um, in both the Greek and the Hebrew Bible, there are no figures. The Arabic figures that we use today are used by all the world. 
And I suppose you know that the first one has got one angle, and the second one's got two angles, and the third has got three angles, and the four has got four, and the five, and the eight is two squares. That's all it is. Just a geometrical patterns. And so the, the continental seven and the continental nine has got a stroke across it. You see, there, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Put the stroke across it, you see. Oh, it's all there, but they haven't got figures. They had letters. So A was one and B was two, so Ab, meaning father, adds up to, yes, children, three. Easy, isn't it? So any word, wherever you met it in the Bible, was also a, a number. It couldn't help itself. Some are accidental, some are important, some are, uh, are uh, on purpose. Now, if you look at many of the, of the um, names of those who are, shall I say, prominent in the Scriptures, you'll find that there is a consistency about it. Now, I've got down here the names of those who were uh, associated with this very period in prophecy. I quoted Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, I've got the numbers, but uh, Daniel adds up to 95, Hananiah, 120, Mishael, 381, Azariah 292, I couldn't add that up to save my life, but I've got it underneath, 888, there it is, that's the opposite of 666. Is that a mistake? It looks as though it might be purpose, doesn't it? Or would you look again at this one here, on the chart? The letters down the side are the Greek letters of making up the name Jesus. I, log E, S, O, U, S. 10, 8, 270, 400, 200, 888. And then if you take a number of the names of Satan in the both the Hebrew and the Greek, you'll find they are multiples of 13. All very curious. Some we want, we want to watch, we don't get led astray by it, but they're some that's evidently on purpose. Now here's his number, 666. Whether it will have a greater significance when the day dawns, it's very possible. It may do. I've read of various others in the course of time whose name adds up to 666. I think Mussolini had something with regard to his uh, official date stamp that added up to 666. And I do remember that John Bull, in earlier days, he spoke about Lloyd George as going one better than the beast, for he added it up and made it 667. That only shows you that he can trifle with it. But here is wisdom. Those who know the Lord are say, here he is. That's his name. That's his title. And here we have the evidence. Well now we must leave that <coughs> and see whether we can uh, discover any further with regard to this before we come to a close. <coughs> I discover with regard to outstanding dates, for instance, one is very interesting. From BC 31 to AD 626 was the extent of the rule of Rome over Jerusalem. The holding of Jerusalem, which is a key into the scriptures. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, it so happens that Rome held Jerusalem for six 166 years. So again, you see, we've got something to give us a little idea that there's a purpose in it. 
And this has entered into our uh, everyday life. I suppose if I were to ask you, uh, I draw an angle like that, uh, would you tell me what angle that is? Or you say that's a 90 degree angle. You say, why is it 90 degree? Well, they don't ask questions, I don't know. Oh, I see. Well, we go right back to ancient Babylonia and Assyria, and they've stamped the letter figure six all over our enumeration. We can't get away from it. They divided the circle into 360 degrees, so that if you divided into four, you've got four right angles. You can't help yourself. And then they said there were 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour, so we still do it. And 12 hours to the day, it's with us, you see. All that's already, and it goes right back to that ancient source. There's nothing evil about it, but it only shows you how some of these things can enter into your ordinary makeup without apparently leaving a mark. <coughs> you go again into other history, and um, you take, for instance, the Roman figures, just the Latin figures. They're all done with your fingers. One and the. That's all you've got for your, your first lot. So you have one and two ones and three ones and four ones on your clock face or one and V in your books. And then there's a V, you see, just here, like that. That's all. That's six, isn't it? One and V. Well, then you come to two Vs and an L. That's 60, isn't it? And then you've got after that the C and the D, 100 and 500, 666, stands all over the Latin. You find Athaliah usurped the throne when she destroyed all the seed royal for six years. For six years, nobody except the priest and those with him knew that God could keep his word and there would be a seed of David who had rotted the lot out, they thought. Six years in the dark, and that's where this world has been, for 6,000 years nearly. And yet the day will come when God will be vindicated and vindicate those who believe him in spite of circumstances. You get Goliath with his armour, six cubits and 600 shekels weight and so on strutting about. And so we could go on. You'll find this is evidently in the scriptures. This superlative 666. And then the number of Christ is nearly all the eights, because that's an octave that gets you right down to the first day of the new week, and the former things are passed away. Well now for the last few minutes I want to turn back to the 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because when we were reading it, and now we have been considering just in passing this tremendous passage, you can see it's dealing with much the same thing. Uh, at the end of verse 2, it speaks about the day of Christ. About all the critical texts justify the reading, the day of the Lord. That is the same period as the book of the Revelation. And then it speaks about an apostasy which will bring about the revelation of the man of sin, the son of perdition. And there's only one other person called that dreadful title, that's Judas, who betrayed his Lord. Who opposeth and exhorted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So we have the same character. And now we have a peculiar piece which needs a bit of care in translating. 
And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. The word to withhold means to hold fast. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now holdeth fast will do so until he be cast out of the midst. You see, if you put the two chapters together, Satan is holding fast to his dominion in the heavens. But there comes a moment when he can hold it no longer and he's cast out. And when he does, what happens? And uh, then shall that wicked be revealed. He stood on the sand of the sea and the wicked was revealed when he was cast out. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's Revelation 19 when he rides forth a sword as it were in his mouth. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, here we get the miracles of the false prophet. Three of them. Power, signs and lying wonders. Lying wonders. The other words are exactly the same as they've used of the true miracles, as you'll find in Hebrews chapter 2. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So we've got the same thing. They, they were deceived because they had already received the mark of the beast. Then he changes from that and says, we are bound to give thanks unto you. God has not appointed you to wrath, but to salvation, and so on. Well, I think you'll agree with me that these subjects which we have before us are not easy to handle. I haven't done very much more this evening except read the passage and just give a few half-hearted comments on it. I can only hope that those of you who are listening will be stimulated to say, well, if I couldn't do better than that, I wouldn't do it at all, and we shall have those who, by being taught of the Lord, will be able to throw further light. But there's a possibility. We should be satisfied with a very, very simple explanation. Because these words have been written not really to give us a feeling of the horror of the times that are coming, They've been written for those who will be living in those times. And those who live in those times will have interpretation going on about them which no book learning can ever provide. Shall we not be thankful as we sit back again when this meeting is finishing? Shall we not say as we did in the our opening hymn, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. And we're looking for an aspect of the second coming of Christ which doesn't involve that we should have to go through the great tribulation or endure these terrible testings of the day of the Lord. So out of this dreadful subject there can be thanksgiving. I trust in every heart to think that we who are no more worthy than any of these others may be sure by his mercy to be spared from such terrible testing and trial. We've still got many chapters to look at in this book of the Revelation. We bring our, our study the, to, uh, this evening to a close and pray that our hearts may be touched as we realise that here in this book we are reaching the climax. Here at long last the forces join issue and then we, bless, we, we thank God to see that victory at last is assured and he that died upon the cross, saying the words, It is finished, is revealed in a later chapter in this book, as sitting upon the throne and saying, It is done. The Lamb dominates the book of the Revelation. 
The lamb that was slain is the lamb that has power, the lamb that is even coming in wrath. And so may we take a lesson out of the uh, witness of the evil that he was conscious that the lamb dominated and so he travestied it. May we in our turn, if we have to preach the gospel or teach the truth, ever see that Christ, the lamb of God, slain yet living, is central to all our teaching as it is of the purpose of God.